Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. This week we're looking at Judges 4 and 5. Over the years, over the years, there have been some dynamic duels that have caught our attention with their talents, their exploits, and their adventures. Some of our favorites like mac and cheese, peanut butter and jelly. But then I think of other types of uh, 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 dynamic duels like music. You could be an Everly Brother fan, a Simon and Garfunkel, or Hall and Oates, or Brooks and Dunn. You'd be like comedians from Laurel and Hardy to Abbott and Costello to Martin and Lewis or Jim and Dwight. Or you can be animation, Mickey and Minnie, uh, uh, Donald and Daisy, and Woody and Buzz. Or detectives, Sherlock and Dr. Watson, Batman and Robin, or the greatest detectives of all time, Scooby and Shaggy. The dynamic duels are just some of our favorite things that we enjoy on all sorts of different ways. In each of these dynamic duels, each individual is potent and powerful and, and strong in their own individuality, but put together... They become something much greater. Today we're going to consider one such duo who team up to take on a powerful foe to rescue God's children and bring peace once again in the land of Canaan. Last week we considered the first of the three judges that were sent to deliver Israel from their oppressor. The oppression was due to the rebellion against Yahweh as they failed to obey their covenant with him, as you might recall. We learned that entertaining sin in our lives will cost us dearly. Amen? Let me say it again. Entertaining sin in our lives will cost you dearly. You may think that you're getting away with it. You may think, well, I've kept it private. But in the end, all things will become to bear. However, even though it does cost them dearly, years of oppression, God always hears and shows mercy to those who genuinely repent. And that's what we saw last week with the three judges. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 4 and 5 of Judges. Chapter 4 is a prose or a narrative of the account of uh, Deborah and Barak, while chapter 5 is a poetic account of the same events, just given in a different way. There are some differences between the two, as well as some uh, uh, sameness, but each one either adds or leaves out parts of their stories. As a whole, we get an understanding of what happened during that time. By reading two together, we get a full picture of what transpires. So with that, we're going to read Judges chapter 4, 1 through 3, as we just open up. The writer of uh, Judges says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Caesarea, who lived in Horesh Hagomai. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he cruelly oppressed the people of Israel for 20 years. Father, again, we're opening up to a story that is fun, exciting, full of adventure, but yet full of tragedy, full of sadness and sin. 
But Lord, here we are trying to make sense of what it means to, to us this morning. So we ask for your spirit to come, give us free reign, keep our minds free from distractions, from daydreaming, all those things that try to pull us away and just be focused on your word. Let me speak words that are edifying, that build up. Lord, let us know the difference between uh, your word, your truth, and my just opinion. And in the end, Father, we pray that your spirit will work and that we may respond to what you're calling us to this morning. We thank you for your word and your name. Amen. The writer of Judges informs us that soon after Ehud's death, Israel once again spirals into entertaining sin or entertaining evil and forsaking the covenant of God. Remember, this is a cycle that repeats throughout uh, Judges as well as life as a whole. Once again, Yahweh sends an enemy to oppress them for 20 years. The writer makes note that this time the 20 years were filled with cruelty. In chapter 5 of verse 6, or in chapter 5 verse 6, Deborah describes the time as in the days of Shamgar and the son of er, the son of Anath in the days of Joel that the that the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. The, vigil, the villagers ceased in Israel. This is a time which the people did not feel safe enough to travel. Commerce is coming to an end and suffer as they were afraid to go to the market to buy and sell. People were staying on their farms and homes, not venturing out. There was no police, no guards, no military to safeguard the roads in the countryside. Anyone traveling would be helpless prey to bandits, robbers, and the enemy attacks of Jabin. It also seems that Israel was defenseless against their enemies as they had no weapons uh, sung in Judges chapter 5, verse 8 that we read earlier. She write, or she sings, was a shield or a spear to be seen among the 40,000 of Israel? And of course, the answer is no, there wasn't. Now, this is not meant as a political point, so please, I apologize at times if you take it as that. But we see time and time again that Israel is forbidden to own any weapons or iron for their farm equipment, lest they use them as weapons. Not only are they disarmed with no capacity or capability to fashion weapons, the king of Jabin has over 900 chariots of iron at his disposal. This would have been akin to tanks in our world. In short, they had no chance to fight back. There is no hope of shaking off the shackles of the cruel oppression. Yet before we bemoan their condition, before we start feeling sorry for them, we are reminded that they once again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, they brought it upon themselves. In Judges 5.8, we read that they had chosen new gods. They have forsaken the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are no longer serving Yahweh, but they are serving the gods and the various gods of the Canaanites. Again, these 20 years of oppression were of their own making as they ignored the warnings of Moses and of Joshua and the examples of their parents before them who fell into the same cycle. It took 20 years Again, look, look at that. It took 20 years of cruel oppression before the people of Israel finally cried out in repentance. Now we'd say, how silly, how, how stupid are they? I would have cried out at the first moment, but yet consider that, is that how we are today? Many times we're entertaining sin in our own life. God begins to discipline us, to bring us back to himself, but yet for time and time again we ignore 
his warnings, his callings, his pleadings to come, confess your sin. We continue to go our way, bemoaning the suffering that we're having, the discipline of the Lord. We're very much like Israel in that regard. But once again, God in his mercy and kindness, he hears their cries. He remembers his covenant with them. And he sends a judge to deliver them from the clutches of the brutal ruler. This story of deliverance includes more characters than were given in the first three judges. First, we're going to see Jabin, king of the Canaanites. He, he, he's the one who, who ruled that area. Now, we're mainly talking about a northern Israel at this time. Southern Israel is not so much affected. This is more in the northern. They're coming down, and they've been cruelly oppressing his people. But then we see Caesarea. He's the commander of the Canaanite army. He's the one that's in charge of, of the thousands of men that they have and the, the 10,000 or more so and then the 900 chariots then we see Deborah or Deborah however you might like to say it she's a prophetess she serves as a judge and then Barak he's commander of the Israelite armies he's a reluctant warrior and then we see one that's going to come near the end of the story is Jael wife of Heber the Kenite she's a non-Jew but she's living in peace with both Israel and Jabin and the Canaanites now, in verse 6, the writer of Judge describes how the dynamic duel of Deborah and Barak come together. Look at with me at verse 6 of chapter 4. So Deborah sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphliah, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabar, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Caesarea, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. That's the word of the Lord. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. Deborah agrees to go with Barak, but with a warning in verse 9. She says, surely I will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah, Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. The writer then records that Barak gathered 10,000 men to fight. And in verses 12 through 16, we read of the battle. When Caesarea was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Caesarea called out all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with them. From Herosheth, Hagomit. Now, here's, I'm going to give you a rule on how I do Hebrew terms. One, I will pronounce them, mispronounce them. And number two, I will mispronounce them uh, inconsistently. So each time it may be something different. So there may be a time where I just say that place. So just bear with me. My, 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 my mind knows the correct one, but my tongue has a mind of its own. So let's just go on with that. And I apologize to anyone who may watch or listen to this at another time. This is a venture in preaching with Rob when we come to Hebrew terms. Verse 14. And Deborah, because I keep saying Deborah in my mind. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? What an encouraging woman. Do not miss this. This woman is the glue that's holding everything together. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. 
And the Lord routed Caesarea and all of his chariots and all of his armies. And you may want to look at that. The Lord, what? Routed Caesarea and all his chariots and all his armies for Barak by the edge of the sword. And Caesarea got down from his chariot and he fled away on a foot. What a coward. And Barak pursued the chariots in the army of Herosheth Hagomai. And all the army of Caesarea fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. We're talking about a wipeout here. A total massacre. But the story doesn't end there. That seems like that would be the end of it. But all of a sudden, a surprise heroine arises to the fray. The dynamic duo becomes a a surprise triplet here as we come. Continue reading with me in verse 17. But Caesarea fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was peace between the Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, Heber the Canaanite. And Jael came out to meet Caesarea and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me and do not be afraid. She's offering him a place to hide. So he turned aside into her tent and she covered him with a rug. Now kind of picture this in your mind. She covers him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up like a, almost like a mother taking care of him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. Seems good enough. They're friendly. Take care of me. And it seems like a mother, she she gently takes care of him. But, verse 21, Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg. Now we're talking a tent peg would be a wooden thing about this big or so. She took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. This was no little wallflower. This is a woman who was used to uh, uh, pounding the stakes into the tent and moving it from place to place. So he died. I would think so. (laughs) Verse 22, but I love the writer being... being, uh, proficient in telling us exactly what happened. Behold, as Barak was pursuing Caesarea, Jael went out and met him and said, come, and I will show you the man whom you're looking for. Now, I tell you, I, I could almost imagine the way she might have said that and the way she might have been standing. So he went into her tent, and there lay Caesarea dead with a tent peg in his temple. He didn't see that coming, did he? What an ignoble ending. Struck down by a friendly acquaintance while you were sleeping. Verse 23 we read, So on that day God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. What a story. I mean, it's an unexpected ending. But what do we do with this story once again? It's another tragic story of a decline and a sin. It's a story of the patience of Yahweh and an exciting tale of deliverance. But there's several things that I think that you and I should grab from this. And so I want to share with you, I think, two or three things here that I have for you. Number one, and these aren't points, so it's just kind of on there for those of you who like to take notes. I know that can be uh, confusing, but not necessarily so points, but we need to make sure that we do not come to the wrong conclusion 
about Deborah's involvement. We can't come to the wrong conclusion. This is why I say this. Because many have taken this account of Deborah and Barak to justify or make the point that women can be elders, teachers, pastors, or so forth in the church. However, what you and I need to recognize is that Scripture does never um, contradicts itself. Scripture is not teaching that here. When Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Or when he writes that one of the qualifications of an elder or pastor is to be the husband of one wife. He's not demeaning women or suggesting that they cannot be gifted in speaking, teaching, or administrating. As Described here, God was using Deborah to serve as a judge for the people. She was sitting there listening and and people were coming and she was helping settling disputes and and things about the law. She was serving, excuse me, as a prophetess. She was one of five women in the Old Testament that's named or listed in that role. So she had a role in which God was using her for his purposes and for the good of his people. She is a shining example of a woman who is stepping up to the plate, so to speak, in the absence of men who failed to exercise their mandate to guard and to keep, to cultivate and protect. In other words, a man should be doing that, but there were no men to be found, so God used Deborah to do so. And she was accepted in that role. Pastor John MacArthur notes, you see here on the monitor, that Deborah's rise to such a role is the exception in the book because of Barak's failure to show the courage to lead courageously. And we'll talk more about Barak here in a moment. But here's the thing that I get out of Judges that you and I must not miss is that the Bible speaks highly of the women of women and their giftedness in serving not only their families, but also the church and the community at large. Pastor John, uh, Josh Vincent notes that Judges actually teaches us how God values women. And so I want to share this quote. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want to share with you because it's pretty interesting. He writes, I realize that this claim that God or that judges shows that God values women comes frightened with obvious irony, he writes. A quick read of judges seems to argue the opposite. And get this, in judges, men treat women horrendously. And you and I are going to see that. In judges, men treat women horrendously. For example, in response to the author of Judges' description in Judges 19, one woman writes that God cares little about the woman's fate, or the man compares a little about the woman's fate. But to be clear, what he's saying is not that the men of Judges value women, but that God values women. They gradually ratchet up the the oppression of women throughout, the men do. But in here you will see that there's a shining light in which God places value on them. The author's perspective presents an entirely different picture. The author seems to reveal the escalating sinfulness of man by exposing and even highlighting the increasingly dark and brutal treatment of women. And as you read this, women, as you read this with us, you're going to be just amazed at what is happening to these poor ladies during this time. 
The chaos of judges makes no sense at all if the author affirms the victimization of women. And that's not what Judges is doing. But what we see here that prior to the rebel, Israel's rebellion, we read of Ashketh and Othanel. This was the daughter of Caleb that we read about last week. They represent the ideal man and woman who are functioning in harmony together, not only in defeating their enemies and gaining land and then raising a family and then being godly, godly leadership, but he's also trained up as a, raised up as a judge later, Othniel is. Throughout the rest of the book, relationships between men and women serve as a kind of a spiritual barometer for just how low the people are falling spiritually, theologically, morally, ethically, and so on. So let me take a, a break there and just make an opinion from me. This is an editor note from Rob here. Is that I think that's something we ought to see today is that the roles that women are playing today and the way that women are treated shows how far in sin that we fall. I see that in marriages. I see that in families. I think we see that today in society where it seems like, this is me speaking, is that today that our culture and political is run uh, by women and children. And there's a scripture, the women shall lead them and children shall lead them. I'll give you an example. It's not so much what a, a biological uh, a child is, it's what a child says before they're even uh, old enough to talk. It's what a little child says that we must listen to instead of giving them the wisdom of age. It's, it's all sorts of things that we're leaving, the emasculation of men and everything else that we see in school systems and everywhere else. And we need to recognize that many times the spiritual um, temperature of a church, of a family, can be taken by the roles that women are forced to play when men do not step up in their uh, creation mandate. I'll speak more of that in a moment. And that's so important. Isn't it sad that many times in churches, and our church, by the way, is, is kind of the, the outlier on this, but typically most churches are filled and run by women. They're the ones who come. Where's their husbands? Usually in bed or golfing, washing the car, so on and so forth. Can't tell me how many churches where it's been that it's the women that are running everything with a few men that happen to step up. Unlike Othniel, the first judge, Barak refused to trust and obey God. He ultimately needed Deborah as a security blanket because he refused to see God as his shield. As a result, Jael, a foreign woman, kills the enemy's general. The hero of the story winds up not even being an Israelite. It winds up being a woman who is friendly to the Canaanites. And she's the one that receives credit for delivering Israel instead of Barak. Interestingly, she is, or Caesarea is depicted as being rolled up in a womb like a rug. And, and Jael feeds him like milk, like a mother, before driving a stake through his head. I'm not saying, mothers, that's a, that's a good way to put your kids to bed, but, uh, or your husband. Amid evil and a lack of godly leadership, De Deborah and Jael step in and do what needs to be done. Unfortunately, this pictures many homes today where husbands have neglected to lead their families in honoring God and where young men are distracted, discouraged, and emasculated by culture and social uh, influencers. 
What you and I need to do is that we need to recover the biblical model of manhood and womanhood that God has ordained in creation. Let us also be thankful for God's wonderful gift of women who come along and serve as helpmeets and supporters and many times steps into the breaches of the wall when needed. So let us not come to the wrong conclusion about divorce. She is used for God's purposes, but that's typically not God's plan. But number two, let us not be too quick to condemn Barak. Because I believe in this story, men, you and I are not the heroes, but you and I are Barak who are sitting in the wings, not obeying God when he calls us to step up and to rise up to the occasion. There are several things to regard concerning this man. First, many would claim that he was disobedient and a coward. Look back with me at Judges chapter 4. and Look at verses 6. Verse 6, I should say. And we're going to look at the last part of the verse. Deborah comes to him. She sends and she summons Barak to her. She doesn't go to him. She says, Barak, you need to come here. And listen to how she speaks to him and what she says. She says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Now, I'm trying to think of this verse, and people take it different ways. So in one way, we can say, wait a second. God told me he's already told you something. Or she could be giving him a fresh word of God. I'm not quite sure. I kind of believe that, that Barak has been given instructions by God, but he has not yet taken it. And in the way in which she says, she goes, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Taubar, taking 10,000 from the people, and I will draw out Sisera. Now that's not Deborah speaking, that's the Lord God. That's the Lord saying, I will draw out the general to meet you by the river and his chariots and his troops, and I will give him to your hand. Now, this area where he's asking him to meet is very, very important. You and I will read through this very quickly, and, and I did many times until you take chapter 5 and you put it together with 4, and you'll see why God wants him to meet at that brook. But what we see is God says, I have a battle plan. Barak, I need you to grab your men and I need you to go there because I'm going to give Jabin into your hands. But as it seems here that he has not done so. I read this as she is chiding him. She scolds him for his disobedience in Yahweh's direct command. God has given him some direction and a battle plan, promising to give the enemy into his hands. But for some reason, Barak has not done so. Now, some would interpret this reluctance as either cowardice or pragmatism, believing that he could not defeat such a powerful enemy. This man has 900 iron chariots. We have wooden stakes and holes and rakes for farming. That's all we have. Many would believe that he's hiding behind a woman's skirt when he replies to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go, I will not go. Like he's stomping his foot like a toddler. One theologian writes, God rebuked Barak's cowardice by a pledge that a woman then would get the glory and slay Caesarea. However, one theologian, as I studied this, he remarks that the request to be accompanied by a prophet is a plea for the presence of God. So you and I could think, well, is that really what he's doing? Or is it, I tend to believe the, the, that, that he's just showing cowardice here. But, but I would give uh, credence to someone who would say, well, he's wanting the presence of God with him. But again, it's not that Barak went to Deborah and asked for that. Deborah had to send and summon him. Why aren't you doing what you're doing? 
In either case, Barak does gather when she agrees. He gathers an army of about 10,000 men, and he followed God's battle plan. Now, it's easy to read this account and make a judgment about his character, his faith, or lack thereof. But before we do that, let's remember to test and examine our own hearts as well. God has called us as men to work to keep, to cultivate, and protect. And let me give you, the men that are hearing hear me probably know what I'm talking about because we talk about this on Wednesday night. In the, in the garden, God had called Adam to work and to keep the garden. Now, that was the area that they live in, and for that to expand as he gave him dominion over all things. However, you see, that work was to cultivate the garden and to cultivate the heart of his family and to cultivate, to make things grow. But also to keep is also to protect. He was to protect the garden, protect his wife. But as you and I know, as we turn quickly to Genesis chapter 3, that Adam failed to both cultivate and to protect he allowed the Satan through the serpent to enter in and to begin to talk to his wife. He allowed that serpent to confuse his wife. He allowed that serpent to tempt his wife. You and I forget as we read Genesis 3 account that Adam was standing right there with Eve throughout the whole encounter. At least that's the picture it gives us. So many times we're cruel to Eve because she sinned. First sin, really, I believe in my cases, in my belief, thoughts is Adam, who did not cultivate and protect, who did not work and keep. And gentlemen, we can be guilty of that in our families, in our work, in our hearts. And so we need to recognize many times we are the Baraks of the world. Now, here we are on Father's Day considering the failing of godly leadership, godly morals, and godly faithfulness in Israel. And it's funny that on Mother's Day, many pastors spend time building up and extolling the virtues of motherhood. And I want to thank you, uh, Ben, for sending a video of that earlier today. But then we spend Father's Day eviscerating men for any and everything. So I don't tend to do that. I want to encourage you to not be this way. Be men that are godly in leadership. Be men that are not morally confused. Be men that that hold on to the godly faithfulness to be those that work and keep the garden of their life, who, who, who cultivate and protect their families, their hearts. I want to encourage you to stand up and take up your God-given responsibility. Let us be men who lead in our marriage, who lead in our homes, in places of employment, in our churches, in our communities, and even in our nation. Let us also remember that Barak is listed in the book of Hebrews as a man of faith. So even as you and I look at him, there is something about him in his obedience that he confidently trusted in the person of Christ. It took a woman to help him get there, but yet we see that he is listed in that faith. May we also be men of faith, confidently trusting in the person and promises of God. And that's one of the things I would encourage you, men, in what way are you lacking in that trust? In what way are you struggling in believing the promises of God? I encourage you, let's get together. Let's grab together. That's why we come together on on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock right over here at Panera, just so that we can come and encourage and lift one another up that we may be men of faith. And then number three, let us give credit where credit is due. 
And I think if you're reading chapter four, you need to read chapter five. We read part of it and thank you, Randy, for reading part of chapter five. But it's different. Anyone here just love poetry? You just pick up books of poems and you just read them all the time. Okay, there's a one strange person in here. But you know, we all love poems. If you love music, you love poems. That's all music are. And you're not that strange. Okay. Well, do, should we take a vote? So No, you're teasing. <laughs> I'm sorry for whoever's listening to this. This is just us being family here. But that poem is such a beautiful poem that you need to read. John Curd, commenting on the song of uh, Deborah and Barak, writes this. It's here on the monitor. The opening stanza of the hymn, it is a song, is one of praise the Lord. The name Yahweh appears six times, not in your Bible, but Brandon's Bible, I'm sure it does. It appears six times in this unit because he is the main subject of the section. He is extolled because he took the field of battle at the head of Israel's armies against the Canaanites. The real hero of this story is not Deborah, Barak, or Jael. Or Jael. It's, it's, it's God. Again, what we see in these two chapters is human responsibility along with God's sovereignty and providence in these events. Let me give you some things here. Human responsibility is shown in the story as they entertained evil, as they repented and cried out to God, as they obeyed the command finally to assemble and to fight. And then they fight against the enemy. So God calls them to gather and calls them, calls them to fight and do battle, and they finally do so. Now, unfortunately, you'll see in chapter 5 that there are some that stay home and do not join Israel. In chapter 4, you see that there's two tribes, uh, Zebulun and Nephilim. But if you go to chapter 5, you'll see that others joined in. But there were several that stayed home and did nothing. And she cries, why, why didn't you come? Why didn't you come and join us? But then God's sovereignty and providence are demonstrated when he sells them into the hands of King James. Did you see that early in our verse? And he sold them into the hands. He's the one who prepares the battle plan. He raised up and directed the steps and actions of all the characters, even the evil and the good together. He causes it to pour down the rain near the river. Now remember, he calls them to come to this valley near this river. And as you read chapter 5, you'll see, and I think we read in our scripture reading, that it began to rain and that earthquakes came. Now think of this. If your enemy has 900 chariots and weapons of iron, how are you going to fight if you just have a few pieces of irons and wooden stakes to fight them? Chariots win every time. But what we see is that as they go to the river, God causes the rain to come. It floods the valleys. It all churns up into mud. And guess what happens to the chariots? They can't move. Why does Caesarea flee from his chariots? Because he's stuck. Just as if he's on the 405. He ain't going nowhere. He sees the armies coming. The horses are jumping up and trying to move, but they're not going anywhere because God had caused their chariots to be null and of no effect. That's God. God says, I have a battle plan. Now I'm going to bring them to a place where there's a big river, but I'm going to cause an earthquake and I'm going to cause rain to come. Those chariots are nothing to worry about. Both heaven and nature, as we see in chapter 5, assist them in the battle. 
In Judges chapter 5, verse 20, if you have that, would you could look at that with me? Chapter 5 of Judges. Look at verse 20 as Deborah and Barak sing this. this, is this I think this is the first musical duo here. In verse 20 of chapter 5, it says, From heavens the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Caesarea. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, that's the river. Heaven and nature assist them in the battle. So both human responsibility and the divine hand of God work to fulfill God's plan of redemption. King Solomon writes in Proverbs 21, you'll see it here on the monitor, I believe. It says, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but say this with me, the victory belongs to the Lord. Amen? Amen. I think some of you are facing this in your life. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to say, what are the chariots in your life? Just as we're talking about what are the Goliaths in your life. But there are things that you're looking at and you're saying, there's no way I can defeat this. It may be a health issue. It may be financial. It may be just what's going on in the world. It's maybe the schools. It may be whatever. It may be just your husband or your spouse. But let me tell you that God can deliver you from it all. He is powerful enough. He can move both heaven and earth to accomplish his will. And that's what we see is that all things happen according to his purpose and his counsel. And that all things work to good to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, looking at the monitor. Look at what Moses prays here. Yes, we can rely on God, but this is what's important too. Let the Lord, the God of, of the spirits of all flesh... Appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that has no shepherd. And, and stay there if you would just for a moment, Ben. Moses knew that Israel is going to need a man. He rose up Moses. He then raises up Joshua. But after that days, there's no king. From time to time, as they repented, God raised up a man because they were like sheep without shepherds to lead them. And each and every time, we saw that these shepherds eventually died, as all men do. They fail, they're flawed, they're sinful. But I want to point you to something that God eventually sent one man, appointed one man, his anointed, his Messiah, the Christ. The one who would come to run or to lead over the, to stand over the congregation, lead us into that promised land, into the new kingdom. He sent Christ. You see, this story is helping us understand the story of redemption, the story of the Bible, the prince who slays the dragon and wins the girl. Time and time again, we need godly leadership. We need godly men. We need godly women to stand up who have no moral confusion, but have godly morals and are faithful to the covenant that God has called us. This points to the one who accomplishes it all. Because as we read, as this story ends, they have, they have I think, what, 40 years of peace and land. But eventually what happens? As we go into chapter 6, they fail again. So do we take from this account... How does this fit in the story of the Bible? Very simply, this points again to Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one. 
He is the one that can defeat all enemies. I would concur with Steve Matheson, who points out, you see it here on the monitor, that God accomplishes his mission through people who take bold steps to help him. And that's what we are looking for at OVBC. That's what we are looking for today's church, is we need people who are bold enough to step up and help. You say, what help does God need? Can't God do all things? Yes. But as long as God works in his sovereignty and providence, it is also his design to use human responsibility. That's why he says, all authority is invested in me to give to you, to go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, and to teach them to obey all the commandments of God. You and I would be salt and light. We're the ambassadors of Christ. We're the fragrance. We're the aroma. Like the Marines, he's looking for a few good men and women. But I encourage you, men, we are to lead by example. Too many times we're waiting for someone else to do it. Well, if you go, I'll go. Well, if you go, I'll go. Well, if he's not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. We have the same excuses as Barack. I want to challenge you, both men and women, this morning. Let us be bold to step in the way that God has called us, the ways of the Lord, the way, the way, the way I'm, not, I'm not even going to get it. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. You've heard me say another definition of faith is obedience to God's word in defiance, or boldly obeying God's word in defiance of circumstances and consequences. We need to do that today. We need both men and women to step up in godly leadership, to model godly faithfulness and godly morals. We are commanded to lead our families in the fear and trembling of the Lord and to proclaim the message of reconciliation with God through repentance. That is the message that this world needs. It's not what they want, but it's what they need. And instead of joining those who have abandoned the word of God or approving of their lifestyles, we are called to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We also remember that God's patience and mercy to the 12 tribes were supernatural as he refrained from condemning them to destruction. You and I must realize that there is a day of judgment coming when we will all stand before Christ to give an account of all that we have done. Yet until that day, we must warn everyone that God's kindness is meant to lead us into repentance. I pray that you would not go through long periods of time in crying out for repentance. Some will say, but wait a second, if I, if I sin, if I fail, if I do something wrong, if, if I knowingly sin, how long should I wait to repent? The moment you do it. If you're like me, you feel like you must do some type of penance. The Catholics have it right. They, they, you know why they do that? Because that's human nature. We feel like we should do something or suffer in some way. And wouldn't that be good? If, if God came down and just gave me a couple lashes, then I would feel okay. But then God instead offers me mercy. What? You're not going to punish me? You're not going to smash me? No, my son, there's no condemnation. Can't you just slap me around a little bit and then I'll repent? No. It's, unamazing. it's amazing. 
It's hard to understand a loving God who says, I desire your repentance the moment you sin, the moment you confess, I'll forgive. That's the Father we have. Let us give thanks that God has redeemed us when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Amen? Let us not be like the Israelites. Let us be like Deborah. Let us be like Jael, ready to step boldly to do what God has called us to do. I'd like to close with this verse in Hebrews chapter 13. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought us again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us be men and women ready to take the bold steps necessary that these times and days call for, for God's glory and our good. Amen? Every head bowed and every eye closed for a moment as the worship team comes and Randy prepares. Again, just want you to take a moment to pause and consider this interesting story of these characters, these dynamic duel who winds up becoming a triplet as they come and, and do what God has called them to do. Then I ask you to pray and respond. Father, what should I learn from this? In what ways should I take bold step? In what ways am I giving uh, silly um, excuses of why I cannot do these things? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's ridicule. Maybe it's you just feel like you're inadequate. But let's always remember that we are not alone. We have a great shepherd. We have the captain, the commander of our army who goes before us, giving us victory after victory. Randy, would you come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.